Today's workplace podcast disclaimer, JT Wilson. This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's Workplace Podcast. Welcome to today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. During this season of today's workplace, we are focusing much of our attention on the post-COVID workplace. Today, we are very fortunate to have Angela Reddick Wright. Angela is a practicing attorney for 25 years and was named a best lawyer in America for employment and labor law. Angela Reddick Wright is an employment and labor law mediator, arbitrator, workplace, and Title IX investigator, and the founder and managing partner of the Reddick Law Group based in Los Angeles. In addition to her own firm, Angela is on the panel of mediators and arbitrators at Judicate West, a private dispute resolution firm. She also is on the mediation panel for the United States District Court Central District. In recent years, Angela has worked on numerous projects of consequence to the Los Angeles ecosystem, including serving as a co-administrator for the project labor agreement for the city of Inglewood's SoFi Stadium. And in the wake of the Me Too movement, serving as a consultant to the Screen Actors Guild on critical revisions to its member policies relating to the reporting and investigation of claims of sexual harassment and serving as the compliance manager for the multi-billion dollar LAMP construction project at Los Angeles International Airport. Angela has also been the lead investigator and mediator in numerous national and international cases this past year, resulting from the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement and the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in the video gaming and other industries. Angela is a frequent speaker, published author, blogger, and go-to legal analyst on national and local television on employment law and workplace issues and trends. She's passionate about her work and working with employers and employees to create great, healthy, and thriving workplaces. Welcome to today's Workplace, Angela. We are delighted to have you join us. We've heard an overview of your career, but let's take a closer look at your career path. Tell us about your educational background, how it came about that you went to law school, and about your journey since law school. 
Well, thank you so much, Belinda and Barbara, for having me. It's such an honor to be um, amongst fellow colleagues in the legal profession, um, but more so, more than just fellow colleagues in the legal profession, but um, attorneys who kind of uh, get it above and beyond just the law that we practice and the clients that we advise. We understand, I often say that in the work that we do as employment attorneys, we generally see cases and get cases after uh, the workplace relationship has fallen apart. And we get it when things are at their worst. But what I appreciate about what the two of you are doing with your podcast and beyond your podcast is that you are kind of working on the preventative work that needs to be done and having the preventative conversations that need to take place before things reach their worst place and our clients are calling on us to help resolve um, their disputes, all right, whether it be in litigation or pre-litigation. So I applaud both of you for what you do, you're doing. I feel like we're simpatico in our, mm -hmm. our view of the world yeah. and our role as lawyers. Um, so to that point, I am originally from Birmingham, Alabama. That's where, well, I'll back up a little bit. I was actually born in Germany, uh, Würzburg, Germany. My uh, father was stationed in the mil US military at the mm -hmm. time. And so I was born there and, um, but I don't, I later visited as an adult, but I moved away from there when I was about two years old. And we moved back to my parents' hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. And I continued to grow up there till I was age nine. My parents divorced some somewhere in that, that time period. And so my mom, although I still to this day remain very close to my father, he, continued in the military and it's been stationed around the world. Um, so I, I grew up primarily, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis with my mom. And so she was uh, one of, of seven siblings and three of her siblings had moved to Los Angeles, California mm -hmm. um, as a part of as many black Southerners seeking a better life post civil rights, Alabama. And so she just, we had come to visit her siblings on vacation. And I, as a little girl had an amazing time because one of my aunts was is like the, the aunt that's like a kid at heart. So we went to the beach, we went to Disneyland. We went to, at the time, Los Angeles had a place called Bush Gardens. We went, you know, to the, we had a place called the Pike, you know, so we had just all these, we did all these fun things when we came to to visit California, um, even had Chinese food for the first time. And my mom and I were like, what is this? You know? Wow. Uh, I remember we had Chinese spare ribs and uh, we were like, these don't taste like the ribs at home, right? You know, so just um, Los Angeles and visiting here just opened our eyes to such a bigger world than, than where we were in Birmingham. And so my mom finally decided to move here. We moved here when I was age nine. We moved to the city of Compton actually, um, internationally known, you know, um, usually um, not for all the right things. You know, there's a certain perception that many in the world um, have of Compton that it's about gangs and there are people there in poverty and that it's just a really bad place to live. Um, I think as we can see from the story of the uh, Williams sisters, uh, Venus mm -hmm. and Serena, mm -hmm. and so many other stories that have come out of Compton, that really the other side of Compton that people don't see about and hear in the news is really like um, working class cities around the, the country um, where it's filled with working class um, 
men and women who are just trying to make a better life for their their children. And so mm -hmm. certainly that was what my life in Compton looked like. In fact, even when I um, saw the movie Straight Outta Compton, which was around the, uh, much of what was portrayed in the movie was around the time that I was, you know, in my teen years. And I looked at the movie and I was like, where was this going on? Like I was, I think <laughs> yeah. I was shielded in many ways from a lot, not that it wasn't true what was going on, but my mom and my family took great steps as I'm sure your parents did and many other parents to, to shield us from mm -hmm. some of those things that could lead us down life's wrong path. And so I was super active in everything in school and my church, which is in Compton. I still go to, to this day. Um, and so we had a, a great, great childhood growing up both in Birmingham and in Compton. And then I'll try to make this very long story short. Um, another pivotal moment in my life is going to, I had a chance in high school to go to private school in West LA, which at the time, I really didn't know too much about West Los Angeles, but you know, listeners, if you've come here, if you live here, you know West LA, and if you visited Los Angeles, you know West Los Angeles includes places like Brentwood, um, like OJ, that's OJ Simpson, where OJ Simpson lived, um, Beverly Hills, and you know West. We were talking before West Hollywood, you know, places yep. like that, which are continue could, are seen as more well-to-do communities. So I went to an independent private school there on scholarship um, called the Brentwood School. And that kind of changed my life again, opening my eyes to a whole new world. And what was most pivotal about that is I always knew I would go to college, but it, it I had a teacher, Ed McCaddy, who's a black man. He was my English teacher and he was from the East Coast and he was from the whole East Coast independent school world and kind of eat, lived and breathed that world in, uh, in the liberal arts college world. So he really encouraged me, one, to think about going to college back East, which I'd never thought of. And two, to think about a liberal arts college, which I didn't even know what it was at the time. Mm -hmm. And so jump ahead, I ended up visiting schools on the East Coast as a part of a college trip, saw Amherst College, which happened to be his alma mater and fell in love with it. And that ended up being the college that I went to, had a great experience there. After um, Amherst, I decided in my junior, senior year that I wanted to go to law school because Amherst paired us up with um, individuals who alumni in our hometown that you know, worked in different professions just so we could get a sense of what life was like post Amherst. And my, the person I was assigned to, Sam Jackson, um, Barbara, you may have, he was like very active in groups like our California CMCP or okay. NELC, like 30 years ago. So he, um, that name rings a bell. Yes. Oh yeah. He probably, he came up around Naomi Young's time, who was yes, my first yes. boss, but Samuel Jackson. And I believe he's now kind of off into the sunset, semi-retired doing our serving as an arbitrator, but, um, he was my mentor and, uh, for the summer and I followed him and shadowed him as a lawyer and just fell in love with it and knew at that time I wanted to become a lawyer. And so that's how I decided to apply for law school. I took a year off between college and law school um, to uh, 
for prep do take the LSAT, but I also had the fortune of being a CORO fellow, that's C-O-R-O fellow, which is a fellowship. CORO is a nonprofit foundation which um, trains individuals to become more engaged in public policy and to understand mm -hmm. how public policy and government and business and nonprofit all intersect to make policy. So that brought me back to Los Angeles, helped introduce me to the whole LA political world. So this week in LA politics, we've Whoa. made international <laughs> news, but was interesting from my perspective, well, one is very sad day in LA politics, mm -hmm. I'll say that for sure. Um, and I'm hoping positive things will come out of, of a very, you know, awful thing that's happened here. But many of the players that we see around our what we call our horseshoe um, are people that I met way back when, when, you know, 30 years ago when I was a Coral Fellow and everybody's kind of come up through the political ranks or have had mentors that have brought them up through the political ranks. And so that fellowship introduced me to that side of LA. So my side passion, love is politics, government. Oh. I've done a lot, I've run for office, done a lot of stuff in the political landscape. And that's sort of what I spend my time doing when I'm not now being an employment lawyer now for 26 years. And I litigated for 15 and have now been on my path as a mediator and arbitrator and workplace in Title IX investigator for um, 11 years. But now I'm, I don't even, I unfortunately don't have as much time to do investigations because um, I, I spend most, I'm full-time as a mediator now. So that was my story. It's sort of a nutshell, but not. <laughs> Gives well, a whole thank new you. Yeah, it gives a whole new meaning to straight out of Compton. So thanks. yes, and thank you for sharing, you know, this remarkable, your remarkable story. Um, one of the reasons that we were so excited to have you join us today is that you have written a book about lessons learned from a global pandemic. What inspired you to write a book? Um, well, I have been wanting to write a book, I would say probably the last five years or so, but really hadn't. And I knew I wanted to write something about the workplace because like both of you, again, I look at the workplace not just as, oh, I am lawyer representing my clients or mediating cases in the workplace, but I look at the workplace from a bigger picture. I, I'm really intrigued by the different stages of life that we see in the workplace. And it's particularly in this last three to five years, how the workplace has changed so much. And so I knew I wanted to write something about that. And then, you know, but quite hadn't landed on a topic. And then COVID happens. And of course that changed the workplace forever, but it also changed our personal lives forever. I don't know what your personal mm -hmm. experiences were, but I think for, for most of us at some point in the pandemic, if not a good time during the pandemic, it caused all of us to kind of pause and think about what, you know, what is life about? You know, you kind of have that question with yourself again, you know, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose here? What am I going to do if I make it through this? If I'm one of the fortunate ones that make it through this, what am I going to do differently? Whether it be in terms of my own self-care and mental care or in terms of how I engage with family and friends, what's going to be different about what, what I do? And so as I was having that conversation with myself, I started to think about it in the context of the workplace as well. And I said, how awful would it be if we go through this really traumatic time where so many lives have been lost or impacted? And that as a 
the workplace culture, you know, as people who influence the workplace, who engage in the workplace, encourage others to be great workplace leaders, how awful would it be if both employers and employees alike didn't take what I call sort of a, a collective breath and stop and pause and think, what does this meant? You know, what will this, um, what impact will this have not on the, not only in the workplace of now, but the workplace of the future. And so as I started to think through that and what that looked like, I decided to, you know, write a book on it. Just, I felt that if no one else in time, and I knew I wouldn't be the only one, but I said, if no one else takes the time to document this time in the workplace history, then I certainly want to be one of the people that, that do, does that. And so I see my book as really sort of like a diary of what we experience, the lessons we've learned, um, and things we need to think about going forward in terms of workplace culture. I'll just close that this thought by saying my book is motivated. It leads with a quote from Maya Angelou, which says, um, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived but if faced with courage need not be lived again. And I just thought that quote was so appropriate mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. can't erase what happened with COVID. And we actually don't want to erase it in terms of making sure it sticks in our memories enough to cause change in our workplace culture. And so when I read that, I, I thought it was perfect. We can't unlive it, but you know, if we have the courage, we can make sure that we don't make the same mistakes that we made during that time. And that when the next crises come, because there will be, unfortunately, the world we live in, there's always, whether it be another, you know, pandemic or disease or some world war, you know, there's going to be another crisis. And so how will we, how will the workplace and workplace leaders be flexible and nimble enough to move with those, the, the changing times? Awesome. Well, in, in your writings, you identified seven crucial lessons from the global pandemic, uh, which I think uh, it's these call outs are so incredibly important. Um, you know, I, I um, transitioned and pivoted on my legal career to one in the HR organization to help really the workplace become that place where people feel like they belong, where people can do their best work, where you can continue to be productive in the face of things like a global pandemic. So I think our listeners would benefit from having you discuss each of these lessons, starting with lesson one, elevating human resources resources to a higher level. That's really important to me. So describe yes. what the, yeah, so describe what the role of HR was pre-pandemic and how you're seeing the role of human resources change and I guess give us some of the key lessons that are learned from human resources. Right, right. So I call the lessons just so I can remember them and help others to remember them. I call them the four E's and the three D's. And so, so the first E and the four E's is elevating the role of HR. And I absolutely had to start the chapter, make that my first chapter, exactly for the reasons you said, Belinda. I have always been a big believer that the best organizations value and appreciate and place a great investment in its human resources leaders and the team of members that lead its human resources department and then what I call its human capital is people like an organization no matter what whether it makes widgets or provides you know professional services no matter what its business is if 
you can almost tell, a, you could generally tell a great organization just from an okay organization by how it treats its people and whether it has empowered its HR leaders to be at the forefront of that. So in, in our work as lawyers, we the people we work with on the ground are HR leaders. So we know all the more so that their roles are vital. And so in terms of elevating HR pre-pandemic, I think HR was in transition already and be even before pre-pandemic, but there were, I felt that there were two types of HR entities within most companies. There are the HR entities that just do processing or like you all stay over there in your office and your cubicles and you just process the payroll, process the benefits, you know, just do the things to keep the basics working. And that's certainly important and every great organization needs um, a team of great processors. But that team has to be balanced against individuals that also focus on risk management uh, and even bigger than that, that drive the vision of investing in those who are on the ground to make sure they're empowered as employees, that they feel heard as employees. And so even before the pandemic, I was sort of preaching, like if your organization doesn't include all of those key components of, of HR, even if it's a smaller organization, finding ways to get that through consultants or PEOs or other ways, you know, even if you just make sure your one or your team of one or two HR leaders get that kind of training and exposure Exposure, it's important to have an HR department that is not just processing, but also is empowered, that has a direct line to the CEO in the C-suite of the organization, if they're not already a part of the C-suite, where they have a direct line to advocate for the people of the organization and to ensure that the organization is doing right by its people. And that became super apparent in the pandemic because suddenly for the organizations that already showed value for HR versus those that didn't, they saw, even more so that if you didn't have a strong team in place already, that your organization was already behind the eight ball on March 20th when we got those stay at home orders. And so the teams that had HR people that were thinking about talent development, how to help people work from home, how to keep people engaged and motivated while working from home, processing leave requests and vaccination issues and so forth. HR literally is on the forefront. And I just can imagine the organizations that did not have that infrastructure in place already probably struggled throughout the pandemic. And even those that had the infrastructure probably struggled a little bit too because we hadn't, none of our strategic plans included what to do in the event of a pandemic, right? So we had to write the playbook as we were going. So HR was important before and became even more critical during the pandemic. And so I will always, till I die on my deathbed, will say any great organization, you can tell it by how it treats its people and where in its organization is HR function lies. And yeah. it should be at the top of the organization chart. I'm 100 <laughs> with you on that. Yeah. The next lesson you discuss is employee engagement. I guess that's the second E, um, building the best team yet. And so what do you mean by uh, employee engage, engagement and why is it important? And what are some of the challenges to employee engagement and ways to overcome those challenges? Right. Well, I, the biggest question during the pandemic, as almost, almost all employers, except those with essential workers, 
um, had to allow employees to, to work remotely or find some type of hybrid option. So the big question became how, if you're not seeing those individuals every day, if you're not sitting together, you know, having lunch, um, having a manager or supervisor directly overseeing a person's work, how do you keep those, how do you keep your employees engaged um, in a remote or hybrid work environment? Or even if they're essential employees, how do you keep them motivated, incentivized? I mean, a lot of essential employees, as we'll discuss, were simply, you know, scared of their their lives being on the front lines in that way. So the challenge became how through a virtual screen do we, you know, make people feel included? Do we show people that we care? So we saw all sorts of things um, pop up, a whole businesses about, I think, Barbara, you were hosting some professional networking happy hours during this time and brought in, you know, some professionals that lead you through, not not you per se, but I've, I've been on Zoom calls where they bring in professionals that lead you through uh, ex- breathing exercises mm-hmm. and how to sit at your desk and, you know, how to, um, you know, employers sending lunch to people's houses, mm-hmm. employers doing training as a way to say, okay, this is how we're going to engage anew during the pandemic. But I think the most critical thing is employers had to train their managers and supervisors on what to do differently now that they were not directly engaged okay. with their employees. So many managers, you know, above and beyond the screen had to pick up the phone and just have phone conversations with their team members to let them know, one, that they care, that they wanted to make sure as they were working from home that things were going okay, to get their feedback about what they felt comfortable with, what they didn't feel comfortable with. But the point was we had to think out the box about how to, one, let employees know we still care about them and that they're important, that we care about the work that they're doing, but two, actively manage their work and oversee their work to make sure that individuals were still being productive. And I think the companies that were creative about that and show that they had a heart during that process are the companies that were able to more successfully navigate during these time periods. And your words about engagement brought up another question in my mind, uh, Angela, because one of the post-pandemic impacts has been, and, and one of the other words that we see elevated now is the whole concept of employee experience. Yes. And so can you talk a little bit about how you know that has changed also or how attention to that has changed also? Yes. Um, and as I was kind of closing out my comments, a big part of the research shows that even post pre-pandemic that while employees care about pay and benefits and those things are important to your point belinda is really about the experience that employees care about are they working in an environment one that they feel is mission driven and that it's an organization that kind of puts its money where its mouth is so to speak Mm -hmm. so as these social issues have arisen in the world Um, Is it a company that's willing to stand up and say something in response? And do they allow their employees to be engaged in a way that's meaningful to them and that increases their experience in the workplace? Many employees during the pandemic 
they not only had to worry about themselves, they had to worry about their families. Some are working parents, some are taking care of um, other family members, whether it be parents or spouse or just other extended family members. And so employers had to show that they understand that your life is, as an employee is not just this company or not just this organization, but your life is bigger than that. And so I think the companies that supported employees through those times are the companies that were more successful. So when it comes to experience, it's realizing it's trying to serve the total employee. And that's kind of impossible on some level, but at least saying to the employee, we care about you as a total person. We care about the things that you're committed to and that are of value to you. And to the extent we can as an organization while still doing our work, still delivering for our clients, we're gonna try to support you for that. And we realize the great resignation is probably the biggest example of that, that you know, you can offer all the money in the world, you can offer all the benefits in the world, hardcore healthcare benefits, et cetera. But unless you offer that total experience that we care about you, we value you, we respect you, you know, employees are going to look for the companies that offer those, the monetary and the benefits, but also Mm -hmm. offer the other as well to round out their experience. You've been listening to today's workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reach. If you like what you heard, Click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E.com.